Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian's not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Biblical theology, my friends, that is what we try and do here at Theology Matters. You can email us at theologymatters at yahoo.com, theologymatters at yahoo.com. If you have a question about one of the shows, or maybe you're a trained apologist and uh, would be interested in coming on and 
uh, doing a show with us. Would love to have you. Maybe you're an atheist and have questions or a Mormon or somebody of a different world religion, have questions. We love to hear from uh, from our listeners. So feel free to get a hold of us at theologymatters at yahoo.com. Feel free also to uh, look us up on Facebook. Actually, that's probably the best, your best bet to get us on uh, Theology Matters with the Palouse on Facebook. And uh, we put all of our all of our podcasts are up there, all the previous shows that we've done over the years. Um, yeah, my wife was saying that uh, as she was looking through the history that we have been doing this show for three years. If you can believe that. So God has been very uh, gracious to us in that manner and allowing us to do these shows and I uh, hope it's a blessing to you. And uh, I am certainly blessed as I've got to talk to uh, a lot of uh, just amazing people, a lot of amazing apologists, and it's been a real blessing for me. So tonight we have a great show lined up for you. Um, we're going to bring on Marcia Montenegro with Christian Answers for the New Age. Marcia is, is one of our most popular guests we've ever ever had. And, um, you know, we had to take a little hiatus there uh, in the fall uh, because of my school schedule. I'm at Seven Evangelical Seminary, and so, you know, had a class on Thursday nights. So we had to kind of kind of had to break it off on Thursdays for a while. Uh, but we were having Marcia come on once a month and kind of talk to us a little bit about uh, the world of the new age and kind of some of the things that is going on there. There always seems to be some new books or something um, being published, new television shows, uh, new exercises, all kind of different things associated with uh, the new age. And so I like having Marsha on once a month to kind of debrief us and tell us uh, what is going on. So she's coming up right now uh, real quickly uh, from the 6.30 to 8 uh, Eastern Time. I will be bringing on my friend Zach Hicks, and uh, he teaches uh, or taught philosophy and I think a few other courses at Liberty, and we're going to be looking at Bible study methods and hermeneutics, so stick around for that. So without further ado, um, Marcia, are you there? I sure am. Hi, Kevin. Um, I'm sorry. You know, I feel like I'm uh, eating into your time, so I'm, I'm trying to talk a million miles a minute <laughs> to get everything uh, you out. Don't talk very uh, fast. <laughs> you don't talk very fast, though, Devin. <laughs> Okay, that's good. I feel like I am. It's kind of funny you say you're talking a million miles a minute. <laughs> I don't think any southerner can talk a million miles a minute. <laughs> that's probably true. That is probably true. So you're back with us again, and uh, how have you how have you been doing? How how is the ministry doing? Oh, I've been very busy this year, um, and I'm very. Uh, uh, course grateful for that uh i've been uh speaking in um some places out of town and then uh, several places in town and just two nights ago i had um the privilege of speaking to a group of women um at a church in maryland and i was so encouraged that this church is doing summer classes for men for women and children um, to get them to look at things in the world uh, through a biblical worldview. 
to look at what's oh, going good. on in the culture and then use a biblical worldview to examine it. And I just I think that's wonderful. So um, I did a talk on uh, how we are seeing terms and concepts from the New Age in our culture and how those terms seem in many ways people don't really know what they mean, you know, like mantra and avatar and meditation and things like that, and then I explained what they really mean. So it was it oh. was it was, um, it was fun. Yeah, it was great, and everyone was very interested. So that was just two nights ago. So I'm I'm excited to be here with you, and um, you know, get to share again. Yeah, yeah. Marsh is one of the few apologists that really focused, I think, on the new age and the occult, and is really an expert there. She graduated from Southern Evangelical Seminary and uh, really is a, is an expert on this stuff. So uh, I'm just going to kind of turn it over to you, uh, Marcia. What was it that uh, you have for okay. us Okay. Yes. Um, I wanted to talk about um, not really a new issue, but this is an ongoing issue that is part of the worldview of the New Age. And I want to quickly say that the term... New Age, I realize, um, is not heard as much anymore. And um, that is because it's really become part of mainstream culture. And it has sort of divided up into different areas, into health and into education and business and sports, etc. So it's, it's very much, in fact, it's more in the culture now than it was when people were hearing the term, the New Age. So... Um, I just want people to be aware that it hasn't gone away. Um, And, of course, most people who get involved with um, New Age spirituality aren't going to use that term. It's not going to be presented ever as New Age, Um, except when I'm talking about it. (laughs) Uh, So um, I just wanted to start off with that. And what I wanted to talk about was this view of the age of Aquarius. And um, oh. usually when I mention that, people say, oh, isn't that from a musical called Hair? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that was in a musical called Hair. <laughs> the hair that uh, was wow. in, started in 1968. You know, see, I can't sing, so I won't um, torture anybody with me trying to sing that line. But, you know, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius is a big line in that song. And um, wow. there was the Aquarian Conspiracy by Margot Adler, which was first published in 1980. Um, and I want—I want—I think it's good for people to understand what is meant by this age of Aquarius, because it is definitely a part of this worldview of people who are involved in this spirituality. Um, and in order to explain it, I need to quickly say that. The previous age, the age of Pisces, um, has more or less come to an end. Um, People in the New Age and astrologers, because this relates to astrology, would agree that we have entered or we are entering um, the age of Aquarius. And the age of Aquarius, technically, um, it, it comes from the uh, way the North Pole is oriented. So the North Pole is oriented towards certain constellations. 
And because of a wobble in the Earth's axis, um, it shifts slightly over over the course of 2,000 years. And so it will gradually shift over to another constellation. But it goes, it's the way it's shifting is going backwards through the zodiac. So it's not Aries, Taurus, you know, Gemini, Cancer, it's backwards. So that's why it's Pisces is the last, is the 12th sign of the zodiac, and Aquarius is the 11th sign of the zodiac. So Aquarius technically comes before Pisces in the zodiac, but in this 2,000-year shift, it's going backwards. Um, so as we have left Pisces and going into Aquarius, this has tons of meaning, including... Um, what it means as far as the New Age Jesus goes, which is probably would be a good topic for my next time I'm with you because I could really go into yeah. that. <laughs> uh, that would be good. Um, yeah, that would be very interesting. Yeah, yeah, the New Age Jesus. That would be a good topic. So, um, but one of the views of Jesus um, by people involved in New Age spirituality and by people involved in astrology is that he ushered in the age of Pisces because the age of Pisces started around the time of Jesus' birth, you know, a little over 2,000 years ago or so. And um, and it's interesting how uh, people can take things about Jesus and make it match what Pisces means because Pisces, in this kind of broad meaning of the age of Pisces has to do with um, surrender, universal love, sacrifice, martyrdom, and in the astrological chart, spiritually speaking and psychologically speaking, Pisces is the dissolution of the self because the self is formed in the first sign, which is Aries. And then it builds up through the other signs. But when you get to Pisces, the 12th sign, it's the dissolution of the self. And so um, the people who have this view of Jesus see him as as this enlightened spiritual master who ushered in this age and he lived it out in his life through showing this universal love and through sacrificing himself on the cross, letting himself be killed and sort of be a martyr. And um, his actions and this whole thing of Christianity is seen as a way to purge civilization and prepare it for the age of Aquarius which was going to come 2,000 years later and which now is here. So that's that's one take on Jesus and how he's connected to the age of Pisces and the age of Aquarius. So during the age of Pisces, not only was there Jesus, but there were all these other religious figures and religious teachings that had religious figures, you know, who started them or, or led them. And so everything was seen as a time for humanity to learn these lessons from these teachers. And this would include a lot of the gurus um, who came over to the West in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, Just hordes of them came. 
um, when even before that, Yogananda came earlier. Yogananda teachings influenced me very much when I was in the New Age. Uh, and then you had other people like Muktananda and uh, the infamous Rajneesh, who had his ranch up there in Oregon, and there was all kinds of scandals with that. And um, Dafri John. And then there were some who didn't come here but had followers here, like Sai Baba. Um, Sai Baba has a huge following here. And, of course, then Maharishi Mahashyogi came over here, the one that the Beatles made famous. Um, And he has a big movement here and started Transcendental Meditation. So all of this is seen as part of the age of Pisces, when people are learning from these alleged wise spiritual teachers. And one of the meanings of going into the age of Aquarius is that now we turn from the outer teacher to the inner teacher. And so now we go from these outer teachings and we find the wisdom within ourselves, which was never really totally not true, but now the focus is more to look within. Um, Aquarius also, um, the age of Aquarius also is supposed to initiate a time of altruism, a focus on groups over the individual, um, a focus on intuition and um, psychic-type powers, um, rebelliousness against, uh, more or less against authority, which I would interpret, I think one, one of the ways that would be interpreted would not accepting traditional moral codes. Um, so creating new moral moral codes or new ethical codes for society to live by because the, um, the meaning behind Aquarius is, is very independent. It's very humanist and very human-oriented. Um, it also has to do with tech, tech, uh, technological innovation. So all of the innovation we're seeing, like with Google Glass and all of these high-tech things coming out all the time that I don't even understand because I basically have my, my laptop. I don't even have a smartphone. So, um, But, you know, I'm always <laughs> hearing about this stuff. Um, this would all be seen as, you know, oh, I mean, people who believe in this would say, see, look at this amazing technology that's coming out like almost every other week. And, you know, the way we can connect now with, with our phones and, and, and even beyond that, the watch that they came out with that you wear and et cetera. So people would interpret this as a definite, definite sign that the age of Aquarius is here. And just as they interpreted the last 2,000 years as showing uh, Pisces. And um, Pisces, of course, is a sign of the fish. And what did Jesus do? He had several disciples who were fishermen. And Jesus did talk. You know, they went out fishing. He he cooked fish on the beach. Um, after his resurrection, he cooked fish for some of the disciples there. So they would point to all of that as proof or as evidence that he was connected to the age of Pisces. And I want to quickly say I have an article on that. I have a whole article on my website at ChristianAnswersForTheNewAge.org. If you go to the the articles page um, and look on the right under in-depth articles, I have an article called The Piscean Jesus. 
and it's about Jesus as the avatar of the age of Pisces. I wrote it as a seminary paper, um, an apologetics paper for the cults class that I took from Ron Rhodes, and um, and then I kind of modified it for the website. So it's a very in-depth article. I also have an article under topics on the age of Aquarius. So, um, you know, both both of those are on, on my website for people who want more information. So these world ages that last 2,000 years, this is very significant in the new age because we're just entering a new age. And so people get very excited. They also feel there's going to be an evolutionary leap in man. And they have different views of this. A lot of people think there's going to be like these, what they call earth changes. And that would mean things like huge earthquakes, um, floods, just really big disasters uh, because the earth is also adapting to this new age. And in the process, um, these disasters will kill many, many people. And the people who are killed, according to some people, this is their view, that that these people are being will will die because they aren't ready for the age of Aquarius. So um, that's one of the views, and of course wow. most people in in the New Age um, believe in reincarnation, so they don't they don't see it as a really you know as a really horrible thing because these people will just reincarnate, and um, at some point, and then they'll be more ready you know to live in the age of Aquarius because. Probably right. when they reincarnate, you know, the age of Aquarius is going to go on for two thousand years, so there's a good chance <laughs> they'll be back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, and that, you know, <laughs> uh, so then they'll be more ready, maybe, you know, to deal with it. Yeah. But right now, it's just too much. So this is one of the ideas, and I heard, I heard, you know, this was a, a topic of discussion when I was in the New Age because we were very much at the end of the age of Pisces. And one of the constant topics was it's going to begin. And and astrologers especially would get in on this because they would look at um, the alignment of the planets and how they were positioned, the outer planets, um, uh, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, which move very, very slowly, and, you know, try to figure out from those planets Um, and their positions at certain times in the future. So people were looking at, you know, how things were in the 90s, 2000, and up to, you know, maybe 2010 or 2020. And people had different theories, you know, like, oh, I think when Uranus goes into the sign of, I can't remember, I don't even know where Uranus is right now, but, you know, it goes into the sign of, Aquarius maybe or something or, or or Neptune goes into another sign opposite or whatever. So they were people were coming up with different theories on when it would start. I think I, I even did. I was even doing that. I just don't remember what I thought. But <laughs> no, I, I know that I had some ideas about when I thought the age of Aquarius was starting. And right. uh, one of the other signs of Aquarius is androgyny and um, going beyond gender. So, of course, with all the gender issues going on, I mean, you know, hello, Bruce Jenner. You know, with all the gender <laughs> issues going on, now now known as Caitlyn Jenner, um, this would be a sure sign to people who have this belief. They would say, how can you 
deny it. Just look at all these these transgender issues that are are that are in the news now, and and this has been a big topic, and the homosexual topic, et cetera. So this would be even more evidence for people. Now, now here's a response to that because I'm sure some people are thinking, well, yeah, you know, I can see why people would think that. Um, and yeah. here's the thing. The gender issues and going beyond gender and androgyny, et cetera, or having both genders in one person, um, hemo, hemo, um, let's see, hermaphrodite, I think is the word, hermaphrodite. Um, this goes back to, to paganism, to ancient paganism. Um, there are many um, hermaphrodites, hermaphro, hermaphro, do you know how to say that word? Hermaphrodite. You aren't helping me here, Devin. <laughs> I think it's hermaphrodite. It means both having both sexes. In some of the Eastern religions, there are gods that are depicted that way. Um, and this goes way, way back. This is long before the age of Aquarius. Um, and the idea of androgyny goes back. And there are many... Um, uh, if you go back and look at some pagan religions and, and pagan gods, you find this kind of um, gender issue, you know, either no gender, both genders, switching genders, okay, you know, going from male to female to male, etc. You find that in, in mythology, pagan mythology, and and pagan gods and, you know, some pagan religions. So it's not new. Now, you know, we are seeing it in the culture. It's not just a myth, and it's not about pagan gods. We're seeing it acted out in the culture. But I think that probably in some pagan societies that there were cases where people dressed as the opposite sex. Um, And I think that we see that because in the Old Testament, one of the one of the things God was telling the people, he, his people that he was taking into the pagan lands was, of course, they were not to live as the pagans lived. And he was giving a set of things that were forbidden. And, and one of them was you don't, you don't dress like the, the, you know, a man doesn't dress like a woman and a woman doesn't dress like a man. And I think this is because that it was being practiced in the culture Otherwise, really, why would God need to say that? Um, and it goes along with all the other things. They've been able to find many of the other things God said, don't do this. They they know they were being practiced in, in the pagan culture right. where the people were going. So I'm thinking, you know, that was probably being practiced. So this is not mm-hmm. really new. And so um, I know my time's almost up here, um, but I wanted to point out that um, thinking about this, if you get into a conversation with someone who talks about this, you know, I think the way to talk about it is that, you know, is to go back to the age of Pisces and Jesus and talk about, ask them what they think about that, and then point out that the sacrifice of Jesus was not just to usher in the age of Pisces or show universal love and talk about what that really meant. Um, to me, that would be a way to go to the gospel from a discussion with someone who's talking about the age of Aquarius. You know, don't just, you know, seize it and, and ask them and say, well, what about the age of Pisces? So what, what was Jesus doing? And then you can, you know, bring up 
what what Jesus really was doing and what his death really meant. Um, so anyway, that's one of my suggestions for this topic because it really is very much a part of the worldview. And um, yeah, people are really, there are people who really believe, you know, they really truly believe it, sincerely. Marcia, give us your, your website again for those who are interested sure. in a way to, to get sure. a hold of you. Yeah, ChristianAnswersForTheNewAge.org. Um, from the home page, it says um, contact Kana. Kana is the acronym for my ministry, C-A-N-A. And you can email from there, or you can email me at mmontenegro, which is my first initial and my last name, at f like Frank, I am like Mary, dot org. So um, those are how you can contact me. Yeah, I know you, you've written it. <laughs> yes, on Facebook. That's right. For your, your yeah, ministry Facebook. page, right? My ministry page, and if people want to look for me, I, I'm public. You can find me um, on Facebook. Um, I think I, people seem to be able to find me, so I, I don't ever have to find me, so I don't know. But <laughs> people <laughs> seem to be able to find me, so, um, you know, they can they can do that if they want. But, yeah, they can go to Christian Answers, um, put Christian Answers for the New Age in the search box on Facebook, and I'm pretty sure um, that's my page is the only one with that name. And they can send a message to me there too, or they can post on the wall there. You've written uh, a, a couple books, or at least I know one book, and have contributed to, to some as well. Is that right? For maybe people interested in wanting to get your book? Yes, yes. Thanks for um, thanks for asking that, um, Devin. Um, my book is Spellbound: The Paranormal Seduction of Today's Kids. Um, it's um, on Amazon. You have to buy it from sellers. Um, also, um, I don't know if it's on ChristianBook.com anymore, but it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and I think Google Books. It's also Kindle. It's um, it's in an ebook form, and you can get it on Kindle on Amazon. Um, and I've written a chapter on astrology for um, a book edited by Peter Jones, um, who. Peter Jones, I really admire his understanding of the New Age. And the book is called On Global Wizardry. And um, then I have um, an entry on astrology in the popular, let's see, the Encyclopedia of Popular Apologetics, I think it's called. Um, my testimony, well, anyway, if you go to my website and look um look at about Cana, there's a uh, look down to the right in the menu, Publications by Marcia Montenegro. I have a whole oh, list there of all of these Wonderful. things. I've written a rose pamphlet, um, 10 Q&A on magic spells and divination, and I contributed to um, another one called Christianity, Cults, and the Occult. Um, and then Christian my story, I didn't too, write right? my testimony, but my story's in a book. Huh? I'm sorry, what? Awesome. You, you've contributed to the Christian Research Journal as well, right? I, I wrote many, art, yes, many articles um, are in the Christian Research Journal, and you can find, as far as I know, you can find them online pretty easily by putting my name in. I wrote um, an article on um, feng shui. I wrote an article on the goth culture. Um, I wrote an article on the Kabbalah. I wrote um, an article on the New Age and Shamanism. 
um, New Age Books for Children. I, I don't know. I wrote several, uh, How to Witness to Those in the Occult. Uh, if anyone wants those and they can't find them, they can email me. I'll be I'll be able to find them for you. Those, those are not on my site. You have to, you know, find them. They're on the Christian um, Research uh, Journal site. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I wrote a lot of articles for them and a few other publications as well. And um, I, in fact, I have written a chapter for another book that should be coming out in January. Um, it's going to be. Um, they're, they're, uh, the ministry is putting out three volumes, and the first volume is coming out in September. And I, I am not allowed to say anything else except <laughs> I can't say anything until September. But <laughs> once that book comes out, their volume one comes out, I'm going to, you know, I'll I'll post something on Facebook about it. So that'll be a Wonderful. chapter, um, and uh, uh, that deals with an area of that I deal with in my ministry. So, yeah, so I'm I'm busy. I'm I'm actually working right now on another article for my website. I have a lot of articles on my website. Oh, great. And we'll put a link up there for people to to check your your, uh, page out as well so you guys can can go and see Marcia and check out her work and support her ministry. She she does great work. And, again, you know, it's a unique ministry uh, dealing with the occult and that. So, uh, definitely, definitely appreciate you, Marcia, and uh, look forward to having you back on next month. I look forward to it too. Thank you so much, Devin. Absolutely, God bless. All right, friends, and what we'll do right now is just take a break for for two minutes, and then uh, we're going to bring my friend Zach Hicks on and uh, discuss Bible study methods and hermeneutics. So stay with us. All this stuff is temporary. Money, success, even life is temporary. Jesus, that's eternal. And that's it? That's it. That's yeah. what we're going with. I'm Professor Radisson. It's This semester I propose that we refuse to waste our limited time together debating the existence of the big man in the sky. Fill in the papers I've just given you with three little words God is dead I can't do what you want I'm a Christian we've got your results back you have cancer the answer's simple drop the class it's like it's something that God wants me to do I can't just turn away from it you really should go see mom what's in it for me if you cannot bring yourself to admit that God is dead you will need to defend the antithesis God's not dead he's you're here because that voice inside you isn't happy with the choices everyone else wants you to make. It's not easy. So we, are you ready? We're going to put God on trial. What do you say to people who don't believe? We disown him, he'll disown us. Do you think you're smarter than me? Do you think there's any argument you can make that I won't have an answer for? In that classroom, there is a God, and yet, I'm him. Doesn't seem quite fair to me. I can't help what the boy wants to make a fool of himself. Look, I know I am in the minority here, but I actually believe in God. I think you're here kind of hoping that this stuff is for me. Can you pray for you? To me, he's not dead. 
feet alive. What I want is for them to make their own choice. That's what God wants. You just want to ensnare them in your primitive superstition. Why do you hate God? Science supports his existence. You know the truth. Why do you hate him? Why do you hate God? All right, folks, we are back, and uh, we're going to be joined by my good friend, Zach, and we're going to look at some uh, issues dealing with a poly- or a Bible study methodology. Sorry about that. And let me see if I can pull up his, his biography here. Just had it, and now it seems to be gone, so maybe we'll just bring him on and let him tell us about himself. Zach, you there, buddy? Hey, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear, hear me okay? All right. Yeah, everything sounds good. Yeah, I had your bio pulled up, and uh, I lost it somehow. So maybe you can you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, uh, I guess not too terribly much to tell. I got my bachelor's degree in uh, religion uh, from Chowan University, which is a Baptist school down in North Carolina. Um, my senior capstone paper, I presented at an academic conference. It was on Christians during Nazi Germany and uh, won an academic prize for that. Um, then I went to Liberty University uh, and got a master's in arts and philosophy with an uh, emphasis in Christian thought. Uh, my thesis dealt with the uh, thought of Jonathan Edwards. Um, I'm coming up on three years of marriage, I actually have uh, my anniversary in about six days. Uh, my wife just finished law school at Liberty, so she's the brains of the operation. Wow, that that is really awesome to hear. So you, you guys don't have, are you, do you have kids or no? Uh, not yet. Um, when the uh, when the Lord's ready to bless with that, I guess that's when it will happen. There you go. I guess it's not going to happen before that. <laughs> so, well, that's good. That is uh, that is really good. Glad to have you. On the show. So, talk to us a little bit. How did you um, How did you become a Christian? What uh, were you brought up in a Christian home, or what's What's some of your background? Um, yes, I was brought up in a Christian home. Um, two very um, loving parents um, had me in church, had me in the water programs, had me in the Sunday school, had me in everything. Um, I thank I, I thank God that I don't have one of those uh, very interesting conversion stories. It was just one of those things. <laughs> I was about five years old, and it dawned on me that I I loved this idea of God that we talked about all the time in church, but it was not uh, something that actually had an impact on my life. And I realized that. Uh, that there were sins that I needed to account for. And so I, I repented and, and, and uh, through God's grace gave my life to the Lord, and uh, I've been blessed to serve him ever since. So how did you get interested in uh, apologetics and philosophy and theology? 
Um, well, it's just one of those things that um, when I was about 13, 14 years old, I read the book Desiring God by John Piper for the first time. Uh, and it opened my, way, my my brain up to thinking about theology in a way that I've never really thought about it before. Um, and then from that point, it just became it became the thing that I was passionate about studying. Hopefully, um, the Lord will bless, and I'll be able to complete my uh, pastoral ordination here soon. And I hope to go into full time ministry. And and you know, there there's really there are a lot of subjects that I'm somewhat interested in studying, but the only one I'm really passionate about is theology and and the mysteries that God's put into the put into this world and the ways He's revealed Himself. Wow, that's good. That's that's good. And you you taught at Liberty for a while, is that correct? Yes. While I was getting my uh master's degree at Liberty, uh I helped uh teach their two oh one classes and uh so the way the classes are set up there at Liberty is you got up at a two oh one level class, which is what I helped teach uh primarily. Um He'll have about 200 students, and then they'll split those students up into discussion groups. Um, and, and so it was my job to meet with a couple different um, discussion groups during the week to teach them the formal logic, uh, the apologetics, um, and some of the ethics portions of the class. Um, and so I, I did that for them, and, of course, all the paper grading and bureaucratic stuff that went along with it as well. Um, and then as I got deeper into the program, I had the chance to assist with a couple of uh, doing some lecturing and grading for some of the upper-level uh, undergraduate classes in philosophy as well. Wonderful. Great. So you sound like you've been a, been a busy man. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this. Why should Christians um, – we'll start with theology first, but why should Christians study theology – and I know, you know, some people would say, well, you know, who would even ask that? I'll, you know, we all know we should study that. But surprisingly, I run into Christians all the time that think, uh, you know, reading uh, reading through books on theology, etc., is a waste of time because man can't figure God out. And, he, you know, theology just tries to put God in a box and make him small so we can grasp him. So what would you say to someone that has that kind of uh, view? Why, why should we study theology? Well, it, it's very easy to talk about God as a as a general concept of, oh, sure, I believe in God, and oh, sure, I believe in Jesus. But theology is the content behind those statements. I mean, when you say that you believe in God or when you say that you believe in Jesus – what what are you actually saying that you believe in? That's what theology is. And, and when you talk about um, when you talk about reading theologians and reading theological books of either um, current scholars or men who came before you, um, I mean what you're what you're doing there is you're you're humbling yourself to an extent. And you're saying, hey, as just one person in my one isolated moment in history. There's pro- I'm, I'm probably not smart enough to figure this out completely on my own. So as I look through the Bible and study what God says about himself, let me consult 
the learned men from history and and what do they have to say about God and and see how that can inform and help grow our understanding of God as well because it, it can only do good for our walk with God the better we understand him. Yeah, that's good. That's 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 really good. Same question with uh with apologetics and philosophy. Why should Christians care about taking time to study those disciplines? Well, um apologetics specifically, I mean we we are told to we're we're told by scripture both to give a defense of our faith, um and we're also told to do whatever we do heartily as to the Lord, not into men. I think when you combine these two phrases, what you have is the study of apologetics, because if we're going to defend our faith, then that should be something that we devote ourselves to as a devotion to the Lord. And so um, it's, it's, apologetics shouldn't be something that we do um, haphazardly in any way, shape, or form. It should be something that we, we dedicate ourselves to so that when we're asked tough questions about our faith, you know, we have answers. And, and and then when you look at philosophy, I mean, there are a lot of things. There are a lot of things that Scripture talks about and tells us about about God. Um, but some of those things raise later questions, and that's what philosophy ends up addressing. Um, you know, there. When you look at some of the early church councils um, dealing with these fundamental questions about God, like, for instance, um, they asked, are God and Jesus homoousius with each other? Are they the same substance? What they're asking there is a philosophical question. It's a metaphysical question. And it's one that um, biblical information and theology touches on to a degree, but at the end of the day, you're, you're drawing a philosophical conclusion from that information and making a metaphysical statement that, yes, God and Jesus are of one substance, despite the fact that they are distinct persons. So what philosophy provides us the opportunity to do is have a more um, robust demonstration of what our theology um, claims is true. Very good. I like I like those both of those answers. That's really good. That's that's right. And uh, philosophy, and uh, that also helps kind of with what our discussion is going to be uh, primarily on tonight, which is um, kind of the hermeneutical method and uh, biblical studies. So, kind of a, a big word there. What what is hermeneutics? Okay. Um... A lot of people think of hermeneutics as only being how we interpret the Bible. Um, but really, what, what the term hermeneutics is, what it means is it is the science of the theory of interpretation. Um, it, it's most often applied to literary text, but it can be applied to all manner of communication. Um, so there is um, there's a sense in which we're practicing hermeneutics right now as we're having this conversation um and 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 though we're usually successful enough in these interpretations of each other to carry on meaningful dialogue um we still make mistakes so for instance my wife and i have been a couple since like 2008 right during that time uh 
I've conversed and interacted with her more than I have any other person on the planet. But despite that being the case, there are still instances where one of us says something and the other person takes it the wrong way or misunderstands it or, or just gets the wrong message from it. And there are several possible causes for this. Um, some of them are in the end of the person speaking. So if I say, um, hey, dear, don't forget we need to go to town and do that thing. Okay, It's very possible that she could look back at me and have no clue what I'm talking about because what I just said was tremendously vague. However, it's also possible that she could have the context of a previous conversation or detailed knowledge of what we need to go to town and do so she knows by that thing I mean we need to go get feed for our horses. Um, the process by which she can move to that conclusion is a form of hermeneutics. So the discipline of textual hermeneutics then is applying that idea to literary works, um, especially those literary works where we no longer have the ability to speak with the author. So obviously there's much debate as to what the very best approach is to doing that, and that debate as to what that best approach is or what that best theory is is what the discussion of, of hermeneutics is all about. Very good. That's 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 very good. Um, we talked about the different kind of. Um, well, and I, well, let me ask you this question, like I did with the other ones. Um, <clears throat> why study hermeneutics? Uh, and I've heard Christians say, I talked to one just the other week. Um, no need to study those kind of things because uh, we all have the same Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one that's telling me this, so why would I need to, to care about hermeneutics or, or study, you know, literary um, forms, etc., when when I just have the Holy Spirit? Well, um, having the Holy Spirit would be a great way to have a perfect interpretation of Scripture if we were... Um, also sinless, unfallen, infallible people to go along with it, but we're not. Um, and, and, and so what we have to do then is we have to recognize that, yes, the Holy Spirit is going to, uh, that any truth we glean from God's Word that truly resonates with our hearts um, we have the Holy Spirit and his work to thank for that. That is completely true. But on the other hand, um, we have to understand that we are fallible men dealing with an inerrant text. And so what we have to do is figure out what's a way in which we can get to that infallible truth despite our own limitations. And that's where hermeneutics comes into play. Good stuff. What are some of the different hermeneutical approaches that are out there that theologians will use? Okay. Um, generally speaking, okay, because now if we wanted to break down all the nuances of every way anybody's ever approached hermeneutics, we could be here for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, and it would never stop. But Generally speaking, there are five main approaches to biblical hermeneutics. Okay, so you've got the historical grammatical approach, the redemptive historical approach, the literary postmodern approach, the canonical approach, and the philosophical theological approach. Um, each of these views interact with the three, same three main interpretive points and simply balance them in different ways. 
Okay, so that's not to say that these are the only three points of reference for interpretation, because they're not. It's merely saying that these three points are almost always focal, while others tend to be either peripheral or important to some views, but not others. These three focal points are the author, the text, and the reader. Okay, so for instance, the historical grammatical approach wants to put as little emphasis on the modern reader as possible, and they want to heavily emphasize the author as a focal point and his original audience as a peripheral point. What they want to primarily capture, in essence, is what did this mean to the people who originally wrote it and who originally read this text? Uh, so the text itself makes reference to men having long hair, like 1 Corinthians 11 does, for instance. The historical grammatical scholar wants to know, first and foremost, what did long hair represent in the culture that this text was written in, uh, because he believes that this notion right here is the key to understanding what the text means. Um, the challenge for this type of approach, obviously, is that we don't have um, all the information on these original cultures. And in fact, what we think we know about these original cultures changes on a regular basis. Um, new discoveries in archaeology and other historical documents um, can have a constant changing impact on how we interpret the text if we rely too much on historical grammatical method. Um, this, I think, leaves us with a very complicated view of the authority of the text itself and whether or not the meaning of the text is uh, essential or if it's something that's subjective to our understanding of the situation of the original audience. Um, the redemptive historical approach, on the other hand, uh, tells us that to correctly understand any biblical text, we must interpret it through the lens of how the text is fulfilled in the redemptive work of Christ. So as Christians, we can all agree that the uh, work of Christ is the most very important part, is the very most important part of the entire Bible. So we can see how this view would be extremely attractive. I mean, uh, I'm personally of the belief that uh, the primary men in our society who uh, take part in applying hermeneutics on a regular basis are our pastors and um and I also believe that these pastors should find a way to put the gospel into every message they preach, and this seems to fit right with this historic, redemptive historical method. Um, but as an example, a redemptive historic scholar would look at a story like David, David and Goliath, and what he wants to see is how David's um, rescue of Israel is typological of Christ's rescue of humanity. Um, and wants to find the gospel in this story, and in relation to the three focal points we talked about above, um, the redemptive historical theories want to fixate on the author, but they're not talking about the mortal author. They're not talking about Moses or Paul or John. They're talking about focusing on God as the divine author uh, and what his redemptive intent is towards us, the reader. Um, the, the struggle here ends up being um, that it requires our approach to Scripture to be radically different than how we do hermeneutics for any other text. Um, now, don't don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the Bible is like any other text. I'm just saying that when we're talking about hermeneutic theory, um, going the redemptive historical route here forces us to uh, have a different hermeneutic theory for the Bible than we have for anything else. And I think that's a challenge. Um, so let's say I'm reading Gottfried Leibniz, for example, on the subject of divine freedom. Um, one may say that I can use a similar method 
to redemptive historical hermeneutics by reading the entire passage in light of Leibniz's conclusion, because that's basically what they're doing with the Bible. They're saying the conclusion is Christ redeems man, so let's read the text, all the texts in light of that. But if I try to do that with something like Leibniz, that presumes that I'm able to understand the true meaning of, the, of Leibniz's conclusion before I understand the rest of the argument that comes uh, that goes into right. it. So there has to be some sort of transcendental interpretive mode where I can understand the meaning of the conclusion in order for me to understand how he reached the conclusion. Right. Um, so, on the contrary, if you know it, the the literary postmodern approach prides itself on being able to apply equally with great ease to any text, and this is true, it absolutely can. It, unlike the redemptive historical approach, the literary postmodern approach can be applied to any text written anywhere by anybody in pretty much the exactly same way. Uh, now, I understand, you know, we're all conservative Christians here, and the term postmodern is one of those fighting words. It's one of those bad words that we don't want to see pop up in our churches, in our theology, in our philosophy, or anyway, we want nothing to do with it. Um, however, I, I think this theory does have some strong points to it. Um, for instance, literary postmodern scholars are willing to look at texts like the Gospels as a cumulative whole, and I think that's a really useful um, piece of information there that I think we get caught up not doing sometimes. I think too often we'll preach a sermon off of one chapter of the book of John, but we won't look at the fact that John was writing this gospel with the intention of it being read as one single work, as one cumulative argument for the deity of Christ. Um, and, and I think that's a, a very useful thing we get from this text. Um, but on the flip side, this approach really puts the author in the background because we can't reliably know what their actual intent was so it all becomes about how the literary structure of the text um, and, the, and the reader engage with each other. Um, the problem here is there becomes no objective rules for how we are able to, to grade whether or not somebody has a good interpretation or not. So you'll have more moderate postmodern scholars trying to set these subjective parameters and the more liberal ones are just blowing right past them and stomping all over them and it becomes extremely relative and uh, it becomes hermeneutic anarchy for lack of a better word um, and then you have the canonical view that tells us that for any author our strongest context is the author's own writing so for instance if I'm reading Alvin Plantinga a great philosopher of religion right, the best way yep. for me to understand the best way for me to understand warranted Christian belief is to read Warrant in the Current Debate and Warrant in the Proper Function, because that's his whole trilogy there. Um, and likewise, the best way for me to understand what Hosea is talking about is to read Matthew. And the best way for me to understand the book of Jonah is for me to understand the the book of the, the, the Bible as a whole. Um, of our focal points, you see the author and the text are maximized, and the reader is minimized as much as possible. Um, what's interesting about this theory is there are two different authors at play. So when I read Romans, I have to read Romans and understand it in the context of all of Paul's writings, and then I also have to understand it in the context of Scripture as a whole. And I have to combine those two and look at them together. Um, the challenge here is that 
um, it makes the application of historical context difficult uh, because when Hosea is talking about one will come out of Egypt, his historical context there has a specific meaning, but then when Matthew takes Hosea and quotes him and applies it to Jesus, he's just completely ignored what Hosea's original context was, and he's appealed to the divine authorship and what the divine meaning actually was. And that makes it very difficult. Um, Not to mention the fact that I could read Daniel and Jeremiah and Lamentations and look at them together and see the canon between the three of them, uh, but very few Christians have really studied the Babylonian exile, so there's a big chunk of the context they're missing there. Um, the last of the five, and I've been talking forever, and I apologize. Um, no, you're fine. This is good, setting, setting it up for us, yep. Um, the, the, the last of the five is the philosophical-theological approach. Um, this view attempts to most strongly draw the lines between hermeneutics and exegesis. Okay, so we've already said that hermeneutics is the science of theory of interpretation. The key word there is theory. All right, so hermeneutics is, con- is concerned with what is the right way to go about this. Exegesis is actually doing it. Exegesis is putting into practice the theory of hermeneutics. So what the philosophical theological approach wants to do is it wants to focus on drawing out the lines of where the theory stops and the application begins. So it ends up asking questions like, where does meaning happen in relation to the biblical author's intent? Or how do we understand the very concept of meaning? Or what determines the proper reading and interpretation of Scripture and what determines its validity? Or um, how do we integrate other, in, integrate other disciplines into reading the Scriptures? In um, trying to answer these questions, um, the main focal point philosophical theological approaches is coming down on is the text in the in the reader. Um, it's not to say they necessarily end up in the same place as the literary and postmodern scholar, but the types of questions they are asking are making sure that we're not taking uh, anything for granted about the nature of interpretation. Uh, the struggle with this view is that it, it, it very easily can put disciplines in the wrong order. Uh, it tries to build a very broad philosophical framework before we actually approach a text. And in doing that, it too often leads a thinker to being unwilling to allow the scriptures to reshape that pre-established philosophy. Hmm. Who, are, who are some, uh, and I'm not saying they commit this error, but who are, who are some of the uh, proponents, would you say, today or in the past, uh, of that particular view? Um, well, um, what you're going to see a lot of times is mo- the vast majority of philosophers that approach um, the, the question of hermeneutics um, that, that consider themselves philosophers by trade um, are going to to go down that route um, at strongly. Right. Uh, the hard thing about these categories is um, that most scholars combined multiple combine these approaches, and one of them just happens to stand at the forefront. Um, 
So you'll have someone like um, Kevin Van Hooser who asks all these questions, um, but they end up being secondary to something like um, they, secondary to how he views the canon and everything else. Um, Merrill Westfall, though, I think is the scholar that I would first point people to in terms of philosophical, theological approach. Um, there's a five views book out on biblical hermeneutics, and he's the one who did the philosophical theological chapter in defense for that. Um, and, and by the way, it, I don't know how many if you or how many of your listeners are familiar with the the four and five views books that they put out on all these different theological topics. I, I think it's a great modern invention for approaching uh, for approaching different theological topics. Especially for people who are new to the discussion and want to get the bare bones of what's going on in these discussions. Absolutely, it is. It's a it's a great series. Well, good good deal. So you've kind of laid out some of the differing views. Uh, let me let me give our phone number out uh, for those who are wanting to uh, possibly call in and and uh, talk to to Zach. Uh, the number is seven six zero. Five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. I know there's a few different Facebook groups that will listen in occasionally, so I'd love to have you guys call in and uh, beat up on Zach <laughs> a little bit. But uh, your wealth of knowledge, uh, Zach, really, really impressive. Uh, really enjoy listening to you. Well, see, see, now that you've mentioned that, uh, I I, I regret sharing this this link in one of my groups because I think there's going to be a few people in there who are going to have a lot of fun coming up with the most challenging questions possible uh, to to, to try to stump me. Uh, I I told them I'd give them a shout-out. The group's called The Calvinist Lounge. Um, They're trying to get a podcast of their own started. Uh, Some good stuff in there, but... I ask that the people in there, uh, if they do call in, give me a break and, and, and don't try to uh, make them defend a dissertation or anything. Uh, that's great. 760-542-3907. Call in, folks. All right, Zach, so you've kind of laid out the uh, the different v- differing views. Uh, I think you said there's there's probably a lot more. Uh, but those are, I guess, kind of the, if you were to put them in the categories, that would probably uh, take up that, those four or five. But um, so what, what kind of approach do you take as you're, as you're doing your studies? Um, well, uh, to me, and, and, and I've, said it, I've said this already, and I'll, I'll repeat it as many times as possible. When we, we put out these five categories, usually what you're going to find with people is they've got like three of the category, three or four of the categories they implement, and they just prioritize them in different ways. And I'm not any different from that, um, you know. Uh, so my approach is primarily canonical. Uh, there's an old confessional statement from the uh, Reformation era that says that the infallible rule of scripture, of interpretation of scripture, is scripture itself. Uh, and therefore, when there is a question about the true or full sense of any scripture, um, it must be searched and known uh, by other places that speak more clearly. And I think that's the 
the bottom line rule for my approach is that, hey, if I wonder what on earth this passage is talking about, um, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to compare it to the rest of the canon of Scripture. And I'm going to try to elicit meaning by viewing the Bible as a collective unified whole. Um, and then I'm going to supplement that by um, understanding the historical context, you know, learning about the Babylonian exile, uh, learning about first century Judaism in the Roman Empire, learning about some of these other contexts, um, and then also thinking in terms of, yes, the entire point of Scripture is the work of Christ. So I may not go full-blown redemptive historical, but when I'm reading you know, about the Exodus, I do have in mind how this foreshadows the work of Jesus Christ. So if we're trying to elicit meaning, um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the canon uh, from a canonical approach, and then I'm, I'm also taking hints from the historical grammatical context and, uh, and the redemptive historical context that it has going on. So you could use kind of an in- integrated approach then with some of those methods. Well, and, and I think we should. I mean, if you, if you look at the, uh, the Five Views book that I've already mentioned, uh, Craig Blomberg's a scholar who writes the, um, the article for the historical grammatical approach, and he takes the time to point out some of the limitations of his own theory. I mean, what we want is something that's as comprehensive as possible. Um, and really what usually ends up putting us in one camp or the other uh, hermeneutically is which one is our highest priority. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Let, let me ask you this. I was I was thinking of this as you were talking, kind of before we move on to some of the other questions. But um, so you know, Protestants will get a lot of grief from Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, etc., about um, you know our, our hermeneutic method, hermeneutical methods have led to you know. Um, I mean, it's ridiculously inflated, like 30,000 denominations, et cetera. Um, so how do we respond to some of those criticisms that we need, like, an authoritative magisterium to uh, help us interpret our interpret our scriptures? Because basically it seems, especially like with, with Roman Catholicism, the argument is that unless you – if everybody – is just kind of doing their own hermeneutical approach, uh, then it's just chaos and division, et cetera, and therefore you need uh, an authority to uh, interpret um, the scripture for us. How, how do you respond to some of those criticisms? Well, I have several reactions that all well up at once. First of all, I think those criticisms ignore how many sects exist within Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, how many divisions and, and theological arguments happen within those two large churches. I mean, just because there's one ecclesiastic authority doesn't mean that everybody agrees and doesn't mean that there's, you know, that, that their hermeneutic has produced this uniformed front that ours doesn't have. Um, mm. the, 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 I mean, you look at the... Um, Jesuits and the Franciscans and the Dominicans and the uh, and the Roman Catholic uh, grouping and, and in some groups like uh, the Jansenites that existed during the Reformation era that were basically 
uh, five-point Calvinists who followed the Pope. I mean, and this is all coming out of their supposed uniform um, hermeneutics. So I, I don't think I don't think they're really in the um, pedestal that they think they're in. First of all, um, right. Second of all, I, I would point out that um, when you look at uh, conservative branches of the different denominations. Um, the, when I say denominations here, I mean in the in the broad sense. So when you look at the different conservative Presbyterian groups, the different conservative Lutheran groups, the different conservative Baptist groups, different conservative Methodist groups, um, there are finer points of theology that these groups definitely split on. And there, there's no denying that. But there's also a strong sense of... Um, Substantial unity between those groups as well. I mean, I I'm a Baptist, but um, before we moved, I spent the last several months that I was living in Lynchburg going to a pre, to a conservative Presbyterian church. Why? Because as a conservative Baptist, the vast majority of the theology they're teaching there is going to resonate with me, despite the lines that, that we have that we have that are different. So, I I don't think in that respect, at least on the conservative end of it. I don't think it's the rabid relativism that the uh, Roman Catholics suggest that it is. Um, And then beyond that, just as a philosopher, I I, I look at at, um, Catholicism and I say, look, we all know that an appeal to tradition is a logical fallacy. It's an informal fallacy. It's one of the first things I teach in formal logic to my 201 students. Nothing is true just because it's what's always been, quote-unquote, always been believed. And I put that in quotation marks because Roman Catholic theology has changed a lot more than they're willing to admit over the last thousand years. Um, But Nothing is true just because that's what five generations ahead of you said was true. Um, I mean, if it was, then you wouldn't have had the counter-reformation in the, in the Roman Catholic Church that, that changed a lot of their doctrine right after the, the, um, you know, the initial split of the Protestants away from the Catholics. Um, and, and then, as a historical note, uh, John Calvin and others, and other of the reformers, wanted to hold a council among all the Western churches to try to put the church back together, um, and it was the Pope who refused to accept it. So uh, a lot of this division, historically speaking, isn't quite as rooted on the Protestant side of it as as some would make it out to be. Oh. Excellent response. Thank you for that. Uh, I know that's a question that comes up a lot and not even not even just with Roman Catholics but I think of uh, you know I lived in in um Utah which is kind of Mormon country out there and and um of course they have the same type of questions you know having a supposedly living prophet and the church that is the authority etc so it's good to know how to how to answer that so um let's see so how does how does philosophy help play a role uh in doing hermeneutics um, well, I, I 
I guess in response to a question like this, you know, as someone who has a philosophy, you know, since you're asking someone who has a master's in philosophy, uh, probably expecting something along the lines of the way that the practice of philosophy improves hermeneutic theory. Um, and there is some of that to be sure, but I, I don't think that's where philosophy is primarily primarily important in this field. Um, what philosophy, I think, presents us with is a method of defending our hermeneutics outside of a strictly Christian context. So we've talked about apologetics already. Um, and, and I think um, what philosophy does in relation to hermeneutics is it gives us the ability to take the Holy Spirit uh, and the truth he's revealed from the scriptures and defend it to the rest of the world because the rest of the world isn't doing Christian philosophy, or Christian theology, excuse me, but they are all doing philosophy. Um, so he sees the ability to translate our hermeneutic theory into the conversation of philosophy. I think of something like Kevin Van Hooser's book. Uh, it's called Is There a Meaning in This Text? It's a great example. Uh, he takes what I would consider to be a largely canonical theory of hermeneutics, and he uses it to interact with certain schools of philosophical thought and try to argue that there is no accessible authoritative meaning in the text that we read. Um, his application is largely biblical, but he sets forth principles that are use, that are useful regardless. Um, he does this from a confessionally reformed background, so his theology has a lot to say in his philosophy, but he presents it, presents it in a way that is still distinctly and functionally philosophical, such that even secular scholars um, have to seriously engage his work. Wow, so... That helps. That helps kind of answer that question. Uh, what are some of the what did you? I'm not sure. I, I, you kind of broke up. Did you mention uh, one or two of the books that you're saying Van Hooser has written? Yes, uh, Van Hooser. The the main book from Van Hooser is called "Is There a Meaning in This Text?" Um, it's a it's a pretty thick volume. You can get it on uh, paperback. Uh, actually. Every pretty much every single resource that I that I mention around uh, on on the show tonight, I'm going to post on my blog. Uh, my blog is completely insignificant uh, because mainly because I started it last fall and I've been completing a master's degree since. So there's like maybe twelve posts on there over the last year, but all that sure. information will be there from a wide list of scholars that are that approach it both from a really academic level and also from a more pragmatic layman level, depending on where uh, where your particular speed happens to be in terms of these questions. Um, so I'll have Van Hooser's book on there. Um, I'll have the, five, the link to the Five Views book on there. And any other scholar that comes up tonight, and probably then some, I'll have put up on there so it can be accessed. Okay, great. Uh, we're up against the break, so we need to go ahead and take that. Um, let me give the number out again for those who may want to call in and uh, talk with Zach. If you have any any questions or maybe even some uh, some Bible passages that um, you're wondering how best would be to interpret, we could also get into that a little bit. Uh, the number to call is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. We'll go ahead and take a break for a few minutes and be back after this. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack 
for the audience. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Howe, what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Jehovah's Witnesses, let's look at what they believe about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses actually believe that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel from the Old Testament who became a man in the New Testament, did his work for God, and then now is Michael the Archangel again. So he's not God in the flesh as Christianity and the Bible has always taught. What would they say about salvation? Most of these groups, in fact, I don't know any of these groups that 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 doesn't say that salvation is by works. And, and Jehovah's Witnesses are very explicit that a person cannot be saved by faith alone, but has to do the appropriate works in order to be able to be with God after death. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author Dr. John Ankerberg. Some Christians are uninterested in the secular philosophical ideas taught in our universities because they seem unimportant. But is it right to ignore these ideas? I believe we do so to our detriment. Ideas being debated in our colleges and universities will eventually make their way to our government leaders and spread throughout society. The great Princeton theologian J. Gresham Machen once said, What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow to move armies and pull down empires. As Christians, we must not stand by and allow unbiblical ideas to gain ground. Jesus insisted that we love God with our minds. It is part of our duty to engage the world of ideas with biblical truth. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. It's often claimed that evolution is simply change over time. And since change over time can be seen everywhere, then evolution is obviously true. But highly qualified creation scientists say there is much more to it than that. For evolution to have turned particles into people, simple change over time is not enough. A special kind of change is needed. That is, naturally occurring change that adds new genetic instructions. No one has seen this special kind of change happen. Darwin's finches, peppered moths and adapting bacteria are all examples of naturally occurring change. But not one of them shows the addition of new genetic instructions. Not one of them writes any brand new genetic code specifying how to make some new complex feature, such as feathers for lizards, for example. And since codes and programs cannot write themselves, there must have been a designer for all living things. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church, ultimately, in which I am called to be a member, is what we call the invisible church, whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints, with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org.
All right, friends, and uh, we are back. We've got my friend uh, Zach Hicks on the line. We're looking at Bible study methods and hermeneutics. And Zach, looks like we actually have a call. So I will go ahead and bring our caller on. Caller, are you there? Guess not. <laughs> drop the drop the call. I'm not sure if uh, I had some bad cell phone coverage or what, but for, uh, feel free to call back and we'll get you right on. Uh, the number again is 760-542-3907. 760-542-3907. And uh, Zach, you there, bud? Yes, I'm here. All right. So we've kind of looked at what is hermeneutics. We've kind of looked at the different general approaches, uh, etc. And uh, let's look at this. What um, what challenges do does philosophy present to the idea uh, of being able to have uh, real meaning in the text? Okay, so the, the, the Van Huser book that we keep circling back to um, addresses this exact question. Um, several postmodern thinkers have proposed something called deconstructionism. Um, in essence, what deconstruction does is it shows us that our interpretation can never be perfect, um, and therefore, they say, uh, can never be absolute or authoritative. Um, they see this as having an unstoppable regress from the lack of 100% certainty uh, to something called an open text. Um, an open text is one where either the author intends for there to be a multiplicity of meaning or one where the authorial intent is inaccessible to the point that uh, multiplicity of meaning is the best we can do. Um, hermeneutics then becomes more a matter of learning about how you personally react to a text than it is about the meaning of the text itself. Um, and your reaction and your interaction with the text is the greatest meaning the text itself can produce. Um, so... If you're sitting back and you're reading something like Tuesdays with Maury or To Kill a Mockingbird, this idea is not that big a deal. I mean, they're, they're just novels. What does it matter? But when we apply this notion to scriptures, um, really serious problems arise. And as Christians, I think we'd all agree that there is a, uh, there's an important truth to the Bible, uh, and it's one that we need to get right. Uh, and if the deconstructionists are right, there's no really good way to get there. Wow, that's good. Um, I know several of them, um, different authors have said things like there's no uh, objective meaning in the text uh, or we can't really know what the text says. I think uh, I've heard Bart Ehrman say kind of similar type of, uh, similar type of things and uh, it just seems to be problematic uh, with that. But... Um, Let's see, uh, what theological commitments do we have uh, when approaching hermeneutics? Um, uh, this question has a certain complexity about it, because uh, as a conservative evangelical, I'm theologically committed to saying that Scripture is our final authority on all matters theological. So for me to have theological commitments in my theory of interpreting scripture, um, it seems as though there has to be an interpretation of scripture going on before we even have a theory of interpretation. So the first thing we got to do 
before we talk about theological commitments is we have to escape that circle. We've got to get outside that loop. Um, I, I think we do this by using church history as a reference point for our theological commitments. Now, or, or we're, we're Protestants, right? So we don't believe that church tradition has authority alongside Scripture. I mean, we, we've already discussed this challenge coming from Roman Catholicism and from Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, so that's not what we're proposing. Um, but what we are saying is that our interpretation of the biblical text doesn't need to be an island unto itself. Um, and, and I personally don't think uh, that some sort of philosophical natural theology preceding our interpretation is necessarily the way to go either. Um, so the alternative, I think, is when we look um, as we form our hermeneutic theory, we should do so in a way that is informed by the conclusions of those who came before us in church history. Um, a great example is what we consider the scriptures to be. Um, if I look into Christian history and I accept that the, pr the premise that scripture is verbally, plenarily inspired, and that its message is sufficient for leading man to salvation, and I accept that it's an errant without mixture of error, then I have a lot of the information to go on uh, to use as a groundwork for hermeneutic theory. Uh, now, the important part about that is, because we're not Catholics, um, whatever theological commitments I, I take into the text, I have to be willing to let the text change and the text teaches something different than what my theological pre-commitment is. Um, we talked about that earlier, that struggle earlier, with the philosophical, theological, uh, hermeneutic approach, is we don't want whatever our starting point to be to dominate our interpretation to the point to where if the Bible is teaching something clearly different, that we're just going to brush right over it and shove it under the rug. Um, another example of this uh, is in one that my favorite hermeneutic scholar, uh, Vern Sheridan Poitras, likes to refer to, um, in terms, another example in terms of theological commitments that we have um, is the Trinitarian nature of God. Um, so if God is Trinitarian in the sense that the ecumenical creeds say that he is, um, then we can view the communication between the members of the Trinity as a perfect template for all other communication between persons, and that includes our literary text. Um, so all other forms of communication end up being analogous shadows of the perfect Trinitarian interaction. So um, we see Christ interacting with God the Father, and what we have is an example of uh, a perfect type of communication that is an example to the type of communication that we all have. Um, to some degree, our theology in relation to hermeneutics, uh, or, and I say our theology in terms of us as conservative evangelicals, uh, is summarized in two very important documents that I suggest every philosopher and theologian, theologian read. Um, they're the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and the Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics. Uh, both of these were produced by a council that convened between 1977 and 1986. Uh, notable signatories include Greg Bonson, uh, D.A. Uh, Carson, John Feinberg, John Frame, Norm Geisler, Wayne Grudem, J.P. Moreland, Henry Morris, J.I. Packer, Paige Patterson, Vern Poitras, Robert Raymond, and R.C. Sproul. Uh, what I want you to see here is that Robert. on this list of people, 
We've got pastors, textual experts, theologians, professional philosophers. They disagree on many, many theological issues, but they're all on board with what the Bible is and how we should approach it. Right. That's that's awesome. That's I like the the diversity and uh, absolutely. Uh, she came out with uh, another book, uh, defending inerrancy, on that. But uh, Zach, we have our phone lines lit up. We have some people that have called in and uh, are wanting to talk to you. So we'll go ahead and uh, take some calls. So if you're holding on, just hang, keep holding on, and we will get to your call. So caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Yeah, what's your name and where are you from? Uh, this is Lucas Walker. Uh, Lucas, I'm from what's up, Jefferson man? City, Tennessee. What's up, Zach? How you doing? <laughs> <clears throat> Figured I'd call in and ask a couple questions. Uh, first off, I, I know that you put a lot of emphasis on um, a lot of the early church fathers and their beliefs. Uh, what, do you think that that is... Would you put that second to Scripture? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, because they put it second to Scripture. I mean, they, <laughs> they, uh, you know, whenever you when, you when you read the early church fathers, they're all referencing back to the Scripture again and again and again, and that's all the authority. Uh, and so when I when we look at the church fathers and when we respect their opinion, all we're saying is they were very close to the events. They were some of the earliest people to defend this, the. Um, the Christian faith, and many of them were persecuted for that faith, and I think they've earned the right for their view, for their interpretation, for their opinion to be respected, even though in, in relation to Scripture itself, there's no authority there that binds us to their view. So as far as, I guess, ecclesiology, would you recommend that churches, I guess, put a specific emphasis on the creeds and confessions? Um, so far as I believe every, I, I think every Christian in our churches, especially here in the West where we have the luxury to have access to all these things, our, 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 our church members should be aware of them. Uh, I, I don't think we necessarily have to memorize them or recite them every week when we show up in, in church. But I think it's important that we are aware of what these things are and, in general, what doctrines they taught because, um, you know, if a doctrine has been believed for over a thousand years in Christianity, we better have a darn good scriptural reason for going against it if that's what we decide to do. Gotcha. Um, so, I mean, where, where would you draw the line as far as, I guess this is my last question, is... As far as, I guess, with the early church fathers and with early scholars and theologians and stuff, where would you draw the line of taking what they say to heart and, I guess, kind of just listening to what they say? It, it always gets, because it I mean, always gets I, I know the further we, because uh, I know you know the further. <clears throat> we went along in history and in church history, then you start realizing that you have a lot of heretical theologians that kind of snuck their way in, and then you get denominations that break apart and go their own ways, at, like off of these. 
So, I mean, couldn't that be a problem, though, by listening to so many of these people instead of going to Scripture? I mean, because I'm all for, you know, going and going back to early church documents, early church fathers and stuff, but couldn't put, I guess, a little too much emphasis on what they say, couldn't that lead people astray? Because, I mean, I've seen that myself. I mean, what do you think? I think it definitely can lead people astray, and I think the important thing is every word, like, for instance, I like reading Justin Martyr. Every word that comes out of Justin Martyr's mouth, or I guess out of his pen because I'm reading it, gets compared back to Scripture. And if I can't find the scriptural argument that backs up what he's saying, then I then I don't have I don't have time for what his opinion is on it. Um, if you know, and, and then I think also, um, I think with a lot of the church, early church theologians, especially especially once you get just outside of the um, very early fathers, we start getting to the three and four hundreds. You start seeing really two different types of arguments that they're making. You really start seeing uh, arguments that they're making based on scripture, and arguments that they're making based on, oh well, this is the way we've always done it. And, and then so that that gives you another layer of being able to figure out where they're actually trying to stay true to the word, and where they're off base in their own methodology. And um, I, th- I think the the important thing is. Um, you know, if I read Augustine, and Augustine tells me that eschatology is um, amillennial, and, and, and Augustine's the first person I happen to have read on this, um, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go in there, go into Scripture, following along and, and keeping his amill argument in the back of my mind, but the second I see Scripture teaching something that doesn't line up with his argument, um, I put his argument aside, and I go and I go and I go with what I think the scripture is teaching. So he gives me a framework for understanding the conversation that's happening in scripture, even though I might not necessarily agree with his conclusion when I come out the other side of it. All right, gotcha. that makes sense. For you. Yeah, thanks for your phone call. Definitely appreciate you calling in, and you're welcome to call back anytime. All right, thank you guys. Been a pleasure. God bless. All right, we'll go ahead and take another, our uh, second caller here. Caller, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Yeah, what's your name and where are you from? My name is Zach Mills. I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. Great, Zach. Hey, you Zach. You got for you, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I was going to ask, as far as textual hermeneutics go, um, Zach, I know you're Reformed Baptist, and so a question uh, from James White. He was in a debate recently, and he criticized his opponent for interpreting the New Covenant and ultimately the New Testament using Old Covenant and Old Testament paradigms. Um, And so my question to you is if you would also disagree with that methodology, um, firstly, is it wrong to use the Old Testament to interpret the New Testament, uh, if it is, why is it that way, or how far would you take that? Um, I, I think the canonical relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament is a very delicate one. Um, and, and to uh, be careful to try to not go too far down a theological rabbit hole here, because we're talking more about theory of hermeneutics than we are 
the theological doctrine, um, I, I think that what we need to keep in mind is that the New Testament authors um, used quotes from the Old Testament in ways that were very clearly not what the original human Old Testament author had in mind. Uh, the, the Matthew and I, Hosea example is a great one because uh, Hosea talks about I'll bring one out of Egypt, and then Matthew goes and 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 in Matthew we see Matthew uses that to apply that to Jesus's life. Well, Hosea had no earthly idea what Jesus was going to be doing, uh, that, that Jesus was going to be coming around in Matthew's day, um, you know, in, very, in all likelihood, he was just talking about something in his own local situation, but the divine author, God, had the meaning that Matthew used it for in mind when he gave, uh, when he inspired Hosea to write. So what we have here is a situation where, um, the Old Testament and New Testament form a unified whole, and in that sense they are conversant with one another, and any doctrine that we try to pull out of one testament, we need to be able to see how it fits in the entire canon and the entire Bible as a whole. Uh, but there is definitely a distinct sense in which the New Testament gives us a more complete and a stronger revelation than what we have in the Old Testament, and, and, and we're privy to information in light of the New Testament that the Old Testament authors just didn't have. And so there's there's a there's a sense in which um, there there's a logical priority gained by the New Testament uh, because it's, it's the completion of the full revelation. So then, is it fair to say that it's it's better to use the New Testament to interpret? maybe uh, stickier parts of the Old Testament? Um, well, I, I think if we go back, uh, you, you made an allusion to being a Reformed Baptist. I, I've quoted the, the section that's in both the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession already where the infallible rule of Scripture is Scripture itself, and you use the, the sections that speak more clearly to the ones that don't speak as clearly. I think there's going to be a – because the New Testament is the completion of the revelation and it's the newer and better covenant and it is the um the fulfillment of everything the old testament anticipated um there's a sense in which many 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 times the new testament is going to be clearer because it has both the old testament context to fall back on and the work of Christ to fall back on when it's giving doctrine it's a more it's a fuller revelation and that way I for that, since I do think it ends up being the clearer text a lot of the time. Okay. Well, awesome. I appreciate it, man. That's a, that's a very post-mill answer. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Lucas, for uh, Zach. Thanks for calling in. All right, folks, and uh, remember to call. If you have a question for Zach, we've got about 15 minutes left, so feel free to call in 760-542-3907. 760-542-3907. Uh, quick question for you, Zach. So one of the things that has been kind of popular in, in recent years uh, is the idea of open theism, or sometimes called process theology, uh, you know, the idea that God does not know 
the future exhaustively, God can change his mind, um, etc. And a lot of these guys, like Boyd and Pinnock and others, will uh, quote from the Bible, and they'll go to different biblical texts to make their their arguments. Um, how do we how do we um, answer their their objections as we uh, kind of look at the different methods of the interpretive process? Uh, well, first I'd like to to point out that because uh, I have a very good friend that I studied with at Liberty who is an open theist. Um, I think he's mistaken on his theology, but he is no process theologian. There is a distinct difference between process theology and open theism. Now, process theologians argue that their theology is the logical extension of open theism, but there's a difference between the two, because in process theology, God is actually growing and maturing along with his creation. And most open theists that I've spoken to think that notion is completely abhorrent and they'd want nothing to do with it. Um, okay, but the, that's, that's the, good. The, Thanks for the thing. The, the biblical sh- uh, struggle for open theism, I think, is the fact that God very demonstrably, demonstrably declares that certain things will happen in the future. Um, and so when a theory comes around positing that God doesn't know the future, and then God is telling us things will certainly, without a doubt, happen in the future, I I see a very serious conflict there. And and so if God doesn't know for sure about about the future, and he's telling us that anyway, then we can't actually say that that declaration in the word of God is is, is an inerrant word of God. Because for all we know, God could be wrong. Or, Or, for instance... Um, if God doesn't know the future, God could have sent Jesus Christ to earth and man have just decided to not crucify him. And God wouldn't know the future, so he wouldn't have known. And, and so God's plan of redemption for all of humanity would have been frustrated by a future that he didn't know was there because man could just decide that they liked Jesus enough not to crucify him. And, and, and so the entire death, burial, and resurrection could have never happened. I, I just... I don't see, and a lot of open theists, what they're trying to do is they're trying to react against what they consider a Greek, so a Greek secular, or I guess a Greek pagan notion of, of God and how he works. And I can sympathize with that to a degree, but I think the way they've done it has seriously injured the ability of the Bible to actually um, speak with certainty about the future. Okay, so with texts that are um, like thinking of the flood uh, and others where it talks about God uh, regretting that he made man, um, how do you how do you take those texts? Um, well, I mean, there are two main approaches that, um, that I'm aware of, at least, that uh, theologians tend to uh, take towards that. They either say that God's just using anthropomorphic language, um, so mm-hmm. God's just so all all God's doing is trying to explain His unchanging reaction to us in ways that we would understand because we understand emotion. Um, or there's the there's the argument that I think I side with, which is the notion that um, 
just because God knows it's going to happen doesn't mean that he doesn't have genuine emotion when it does. So if a loved one is terminally ill and they pass away, okay, if they're terminally ill for a long period of time, we know that in the very near future we're going to lose them. That doesn't make it hurt any less when they actually pass away, and that doesn't make the emotion uh, any less real when it actually happens. So if we believe that God genuinely loves us, and I, and I do, I, I sincerely believe that, then, yes, we can we can truly believe that it pains him um, when we do not obey him and we, when we do what is worse for us, which is disobeying God, uh, despite the fact that he already knows it's going to happen. Okay, so let me ask, Just I'm just out of curiosity, do you hold to like the classical view of God then as far as um, impassibility and uh, et cetera like, the, uh, like a lot of medieval theologians and philosophers did? Um, I, it, no, I'm not, I'm not a scholastic in terms of, I, I think Thomas Aquinas was the biggest proponent of that. Uh, well, he's the, he ends up being the archetype for a lot of that, I would say. And, and Aquinas very openly based his metaphysics on Aristotle. He very openly based it on Greek pagan philosophy. And I think he was off base with that. I, I would be more in the line of a uh, Scott Oliphant argument, uh, which would say that God in his essential nature does not change, but that it is not an essential change in God for God to show emotion. So, so God is impassable in the sense that his, his essence does not change, um, but there is no change for better or worse just because God has an emotional reaction. And God's decision-making does not change simply because he has an emotional reaction because he's not fallible like we are. Okay, thank you for that clarification. Uh, let's let's keep kind of moving along the, the questions uh, here. We've got a, got a few minutes left. Uh, what do biblical hermeneutics have in common with how we approach any other text? Well, um, every text, uh, biblical or not, um, you're going to want to look at it in the context of the canon of the author we're dealing with. Um, so if I'm reading the book 20 years later by Alexander Dumas, that book is going to make no sense to me whatsoever unless I've read Three Musketeers because 20 years later it's a continuation of the story. Or if I'm reading My Search for Absolutes by Paul Tillich, I'm not going to under, really understand it that much unless I've also uh, read his systematic theology. Um, so in, in that sense, um, it's very important that our broader hermeneutic theory reflects how we approach the Bible. Um, and the reason for that is uh, we want to stay away from an irrational approach to Scripture. Uh, and don't get me wrong, as we've said, the Holy Spirit guides the believer in understanding the Word. Um, but God, in all three of his persons, is rational um, and does things in an orderly way. And hermeneutics is just as much a science when it's applied to the Bible as it is with any other text. Okay, that's good. That is, a, that is good. It kind of helps us see it as a whole. Uh, can there be absolute certainty in under in the understanding uh, of a text? That seems to be kind of a big question. It comes up 
a lot. Uh, can we uh, have an no, absolute? I, I think it's absolutely impossible, actually. Um, um, so, you know, so when we, we talked about the deconstructionists earlier, I think as far as they were speaking about having absolute 100% infallible certainty, I think they're right. I don't think it can happen because we're fallible human beings, and I don't think we can get there. Um, I would go so far as to argue that no scholar in Christian history since the time of the apostles has had a perfect interpretation of the whole biblical text. Um, And in secular hermeneutics, I don't think we can ever completely understand exactly what the author meant um, if he or she is not right there to explain it to me. Uh, We're fallen. We're finite. uh, We do not have access to all the potentially relevant details in every single text that we would need. Um, and so, no, I don't think we can have a perfect understanding of the text. Okay. Good stuff. Fair enough. <laughs> and if there is no absolute understanding, then, of course, I guess the next question would be, are we doomed to relativism? Uh, no, not at all. I don't think we are in the slightest. Uh, the Van Hooser book that we've mentioned a couple of times, he talks about having uh, what we call, what he calls, an adequate interpretation, uh, which he posits as a middle ground between trying to argue that uh, that uh, we as fallible human beings have perfect interpretation and then the, on the other end saying that we as fallible human beings uh, can't have any meaning at all. And what he's arguing for here is that when we approach the text with a strong, consistent hermeneutic, uh, then we can interact with the true meaning of the text in a meaningful way without... Uh, necessarily getting it perfect. Um, so here's an example. Uh, the NBA Finals start tonight. Uh, I'm a ba- I grew up playing basketball, played college basketball. I'm a huge basketball guy. My wife gets annoyed because half my illustrations end up being basketball-related. But in <laughs> basketball, there are several theories of how you can play defense. And you want to play man-to-man, you want to play zone, full-court press, half-court trap, you emphasize taking charges and perhaps getting deflections. All these different kinds of basketball defensive theories are out there, just like there are several different theories of hermeneutics, all right? And, and when you're playing defense, you're reading the offense, similar to how we're reading the text here, all right? So when a player's being taught how to play basketball, he's taught the fundamental skills and strategies of how to defend someone in basketball that have been developed since Naismith first hung up the peach baskets in 1891, all right? Similar to how we're taught in our churches what biblical interpretation has been before we showed up on the scene, all right? So based on those teachings, the basketball player learns, uh, and by, by that and by playing the game, he learns how to read the offensive player that he's guarding, and he reads how, learns how to read the plays of the opposing team. Uh, in fact, when I was in college, we always covered in the scouting report the other team's offensive sets so that when I saw them in the game, I would know exactly what they are. So in the same way, when we learn hermeneutic theories, all right, we, we refine these things in our own reading of the text. So some players get extremely good at reading the offensive player and playing the defensive half of the game. All right? The highest offensive honor you can get in basketball is the NBA Defensive Player of the Year Award. The guy who won it this year was Kawhi Leonard. He's a brilliant defender, but he still makes mistakes on a regular basis. And I know because I'm a fan of the team he plays for, and I hate it when he, and I hate it when he messes up. All right? He sometimes <laughs> misreads what the offense is going to do, and it causes him to make errors. But no one who knows anything about basketball would say that because of this, it's impossible for Leonard to, have, to ever read the offense correctly or ever be certain about what the offense is going to do. After all, 
There will be times in the game where Kawhi Leonard sees the offense set up the play that his coach reviewed with him before the game, and he's going to know exactly where to go, and he's going to know exactly how to stop that play. That's how he averaged almost three steals a game. Now, what this basketball player is trying to read is an opponent who is intentionally trying to hide his intent at every possible juncture. And yet we still, we still realize that he can, in a very strong way, interpret what is going on in front of him correctly and infer the meaning of what he sees out in front of him on the basketball court. If it's possible in a situation like that for us to properly infer meaning when the opponent's trying to hide that meaning from us, then when we deal with a text where the author is trying to convey a message to us clearly in a way that can be read and understood, and much more than that with the biblical text where God is trying to communicate to us clearly so that we can understand, there's no reason why we should think that we can't have a meaningful interpretation even if we don't get it absolutely perfect. Well, Zach, you have done a marvelous job, sir. You are a wealth of information. And uh, I know it's your first time on the radio, but you did a great job and uh, would love to have you back again in the future. Right. We'll, we'll get together off offline and kind of talk about some maybe some more topics you'd be interested in, in doing. But uh, really appreciate you coming on. Thank your wife for letting us steal your brain for two hours and uh, – yeah, very, very impressive. Good. Uh, well, thank you so much stuff, for having me really. on. Uh, thank you so much for the, the work you guys do on this program. It's a great thing to have out there. I hope your uh, listenership continues to grow. Um, I, I, I'm not doing this as a self-plug because, like I said, there's not really there, – unless you're interested in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, there's not a lot to read in my blog. But um, I'm going to post everything we refer to um, and then some from our conversation today on my blog. So that's uh, philosopher at blogspot dot com. That's T H E L O S P H E R dot blogspot dot com. And I'll get all that information on there. And hopefully, you can pull. There'll be some free links on there that are just articles. There's some audio stuff on there. There's one video, and there are some places where you can buy. Um, some of the books that we've talked about, and by places I, I mean Amazon. Um, and uh, so by all means, go on there, glean all the information on it, and then forget my blog even exists. But, uh, I'll no, 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 we don't, that link we don't want to do that. Once, once you get that up, send it to me, and I'll put it on the link on our Facebook page and then uh, under this show so people can, when they listen to the show, can go check out the link. So appreciate it, brother. Look forward to having you on again in the future. All right, thank you very much. God bless. All right, folks. We'll be here again next week. We'll be having Professor Brian Huffling, who teaches philosophy at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and we'll be looking at the attributes of God. So thanks for joining us, and until next week, God bless. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The word justified means that you and I stand before God acceptable, spotless, pure, and without sin. That God looks at us and says, there is no sin in that man. 
There is no sin in that woman. That he looks at us and we are now just in his sight. So all the blasphemy that we've done by choosing stuff over God, all the blasphemy that we've lived in by saying my way is better than God's, all the blatant sin of saying creation is better than God's is removed and God sees us as just. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. This is great news. Nothing about your effort in that text at all. Nothing about your might, your religious stamina, your morality, your cleaning yourself up. You have been justified by an act of God. 